Well, after a long four days in South Australia, it's nice to unwind with a nice, relaxing footy song. I call this one the Gather Round Song. Let's gather round the Sharon and sing our footy song. Our G-A-T-H-E-R space R-O-U-N-D song. And if you still think the Blues can win in Adelaide, you're wrong. But it would help if McGovern was on. Boom, Ethan and Benjamin Castle are Americans. Watching the footy. Liam Ryan saying, kick it my way. I want to jump over the pack and here he comes. Ryan! This is Buddy Franklin! This is the greatest showman! Got the handball off to Myers. Myers looking for the lead of Stengel. Gee, they're good. Gee, they're sharp. Randall Dazzle Rioli. Oh, who else? McDonald. From inside the centre square. I had come up with an idea for a song like that a while back, and Ethan helped complete the lyrics. Welcome to episode 88 of Americans Watching the Footy. I'm Benjamin Castle, alongside my brother Ethan in South San Francisco, California. This is our Gather Round Recap Show. And that's the first time of, I don't know how many times we're going to use that sound. On our previews, what, not made ten times? A dozen. Okay. So, we're not really going to try to do more or less than that. It's just kind of going to happen. Yeah, I'm not keeping track. I'll find out how many it is afterward. But, um, that introduction kind of brings us nicely into the first game, and I don't want to waste any time. So, how about the Crows starting off the round with a 56-point beatdown of Carlton? Adelaide 18-10-118, defeating Carlton 9-8-62. I think, well... The song kind of helps us lead into this game also because Mitch McGovern was a laid out. Yeah, that was very significant. You consider that the Blues were already missing Sam Doherty. And I think just not only to have a laid out, but to have it like 10 minutes before the start of the game. Like it was announced on TV after the teams ran out. The lateness of it is one thing. The fact that it was McGovern in general is far more significant because even had they had more time, they wouldn't have been able to get that sort of run from halfback that he and Doherty could provide. And you can see that Carlton did struggle to get the ball out of their own end a decent amount. Meanwhile, when they did, their movement was kind of 2022 Melbourne level predictable. Hey, let's bomb it to the big guys. Considering what they were missing, I thought I was going to be less impressed with the Crows, but they were damn good. They kicked 8-3-51 in the first quarter, which was... Almost enough to win them the game. That's in Carlton. It, defensively, they were bad. And their forwards were really bad. It wasn't like, you know, the uh, Corey Durden kick at the end of the Collingwood game last year. It was more execution rather than decision-making that was the issue. And again, the delivery to them wasn't great either. They weren't really able to use the middle of the ground all that well. The Crows allowed one set shot within 40 meters. And so you can see that as the effect of 
a lot of different parts of the game. Harry Mackay and Charlie Curnow sometimes getting in each other's way, the movement toward them being predictable, but also Adelaide's defenders really clamping down and playing above what we expected of them. Nick Murray won the majority of his one-on-ones against the Coleman medalists. We didn't really think about him as being part of the long-term solution there, but he certainly is. Jordan Butts is still on the younger side. Rising star Max Michael Annie. I know you were super impressed with Jordan Doss's performance. Could you get into detail about that? Yeah, well, over the past couple weeks, we've seen Dawson play more in the midfield. And we've seen from his time at Sydney, and especially this last year plus with Adelaide, his ability to link the back and middle thirds. But now he's doing more of it forward and is really helping accelerate the game. He's able to kind of play off some of the scrappiness of the guys like Rory Laird. And he's one of the most accurate field kicks in the competition as well. And so you have him feeding an accurate set shot like Darcy Fogarty, and good things are going to happen very regularly. He's probably got two or three best-on-ground performances already this year. He might have three in a row, honestly, from these three wins for the Crows. And so is it time to start talking about him as a Brownlow contender behind, of course, Nick Dacos? It's funny because, remember, after Showdown, I have said I didn't think he was the best player out there. He's been the past couple weeks. Carlton were due to regress a bit. Every team's going to have a stinker at some point. Honestly, probably good to have it now rather than later. They still have yet to win at the Adelaide Oval. Look, if you're playing your absolute best in round five, that's not good because you can't go into a film session and say, hey, we need to improve this and this and this. If you're playing your best, you're just setting yourself up for failure later. I'm sure they would have liked to execute better, but... I thought at least their failures weren't in like what they were intending to do or what their game plan was. It was just they played shitty. And that happened. I think Adelaide's defensive structure may have dictated the game a bit too much for them, though. I was expecting Cripps to be able to work through stoppages a bit better. He was active on the pressure front in the middle, but didn't end up getting enough of the ball. Glad that Sam Walsh was able to work his way into the game more, but George Hewitt and Matt Kennedy were quiet. It's the first game that they've had really a fully healthy midfield this year, and they're getting it at the right time because six of their next seven are going to be very tough. Yeah, Hewitt did not play very well this game. I had liked what I had seen out of him so far. This was this was a step back, I and mean, it was even a step back for Jacob Wiederaven, who was still one of their better defenders, but not what you could call good. Again, he also had to do a lot more on his own without... McGovern and Doherty supporting him. So you knew he was going to be under the pump more. And you could also understand from that why Carlton's defensive structure just appeared to be too loose in general, especially within their defensive 50. The Crows controlled the entire oval. They scored 33 points starting from their defensive 50. The AFL average is 14. I'm going to give a hot take. I think the Adelaide team, since it looks like South Australia will be hosting the Gather Round for each in the next three years, I think they're going to be really hard to beat in this round because there's so much energy and so much attention on them. And they're going to be playing in a packed house with the crown on their side. I want it to be tough, and I hope that they get tough opponents scheduled. What makes me optimistic about the Crows beyond this round, beyond it being at home, is that you look at the youth that they're playing right now. 15 of the Crows out of their 23 had 25 or fewer games of experience. So this is still very much a growing side. And if they're already able to play together this well, imagine 
within the next couple of years of things continue to go as, you know, even if, if there's a bit of a regression and they end up sliding back, they'll crack the eight this year. The foundation's there, at least from this early success, we would hope. I'm not going to go and, you know, anoint them as the best team in the world so quickly. If you want to crown them, then crown their ass. I'm not either, but I liked what I saw. They're going to need to keep this up and away from their own ground. Ideally, not at Geelong in a few weeks, but they're going to have some some tests. I think this game against Hawthorne coming up is a bit of a trap game that hosting Collingwood. But in yeah, the big trips, I'd say, are at Geelong, round 10, playing the Dons in Ballarat. Heck, playing the Suns up in Darwin. The Suns have played well there. They've got Collingwood at the G, round 15, coming out of a bye. I do think this is a pretty friendly schedule for a bit, and then it really heats up down the stretch, which rounds... 19 through 23 at Melbourne, their home showdown, home against Gold Coast, at Brisbane, home against Sydney. So the stars are starting to align for the Crows to be an interesting team later in the season, which we haven't been able to say throughout our few years watching this sport. So that's good. And I mentioned that the Blues had a nasty stretch coming up as well. Their next seven, they play the Saints, they go to the Eagles, they'll win that. But then... Lions, Bulldogs, Pies, at the Swans, Ds. So hopefully Mitch McGovern can work his way back in this coming week, or otherwise they're going to really have their depth tested back there. Was surprised that they didn't name Alex Sincata for a debut after after seeing that he was somewhat of a light and could kind of fill a bit of that Doherty role. Would not be surprised if he ends up taking that spot this coming week against the Saints. Ooh, I just realized Blues are going to be playing Liam Stalker. Oh, that could be interesting. Are they going to boo him still? I don't know. I think their fans still think he's the best player ever, so... But he'll be the best player ever against them. That's true. I'm also just glad they got taken down a peg because of how full of themselves their fans were after three wins and a draw. This was needed. The usual suspects for the Crows had the biggest possession numbers. Rory Lair kicked 1-2 from 37 he had 15 score involvements and nine clearances. I assume he was your captain again, Ethan. Yeah, he's been my captain just about every week. I mean, who else are you going to put? I don't know, Stephen Canelio, if he's against a specifically strong matchup? Yeah, every now and then that's considered or like maybe on the right day. If they're facing a team that really fucking sucks, center bounces, you could, you know, I could go with Sam Draper or Riley O'Brien. Jordan Dawson, 32 disposals, 11 score involvements, 9 tackles, 7 clearances, 537 meters gained. The do-it-all stuff that we're getting more and more used to from him. Look at some of these defenders' numbers here. Chase Jones has gotten more and more involved these past couple weeks. Ventured forward for a goal, had 28 disposals, 9 marks, 9 score involvements, and 8 intercepts. He was someone who had been on the periphery toward the end of last year, as a sub a couple times, got into the 22 a bit. I think he's found himself a stable spot now. And Ethan, he was your sleeper pick, so good job with that. Tom Dude of 24 disposals, 10 marks and 8 intercepts. Wayne Miller, 23, 10 score involvements and 8 intercepts. After 2020, Miller was like the only player on this team that I had a good impression of, and it helped that he was really good on AFL Evolution. But... Then he, he was hurt a bunch, and I think we're just now seeing him return to that form, which is really scary because now he's actually got good players around him. And he's not the only one that can be that length from half back to half forward. And then once you get there, 
You can kick to guys like Josh Rochelle, who had a goal from 22 and eight marks. Taylor Walker, one of his better games this year, kicked 3-3. And Darcy Fogarty had a career-high five goals. He kicked 5-3 from 16 disposals, had 10 marks and 12 score involvement. So not just being involved with passages that end in him. Steph had really said a lot about how poor Carlton were in both 50s and how dominant Adelaide were because this is a stat that's been going their way all year. Crows 64.7% efficiency inside 50, Blues 39.6. Also, hitouts were 55 to 29. Um, remember last year when it was like, oh man, the Blues really rely on Mark Pittman for a lot. Now he's just, he's folding off some. He's becoming more and more of a, a liability. And as you mentioned, Ethan, we're seeing more and more of this game kind of we're questioning the viability of just playing true Ruckman. Like, if they're not doing other things, like a, like a Tim English, who's obviously, like, the best possible example, but, like, I think you're going to start to see more, you know, situations where it's like, yeah, we're just going to split the nudies between a couple of big guys who are better at other stuff, unless they're, like, really dominant, like a Jared Witts. You can definitely see more of, like, Mark Blitzoff's types in that role. You know if you support with Steeplechaser? Yeah, we haven't mentioned that yet this year, have we? Definitely hasn't been mentioned enough. Also, Tom Fullerton, former basketballer. Sam Walsh in his first game of the year, a really nice goal along with 25 disposals. Blake Akers, a goal, 23 disposals and 523 meters gained. Ed Kernow, 23 disposals and 8 tackles. And Patrick Cripps, a behind 19 disposals and octopus and 9 clearances. So, Ethan, when we were framing this second game of the round, the first on Friday, the first AFL game at Norwood Oval. Do you remember what you called it? The I'm very disappointed in you bowl. And how disappointed were you in these teams' performances? Very disappointed in the Suns' second half. Frio, I'm satisfied with how they played, but not why they played the way they did, as weird as that sounds. I can kind of understand that. I'm glad they made the list decisions they did because they did exactly what we asked, except they didn't bring Will Brody into the... 22, although he came in very quickly. Sam Switkowski hurt his calf, and Brody came in mid-second quarter. Switkowski gave me all of two fantasy points. I still won, but how? Good captaincy pick, among other things, and I'll mention that later. But Liam Henry and Nathan Wilson were both omitted. No medical phase for either of them. Michael Frederick came back in. Sam Sturt got the forward spot. That was vacated by Matt Taverner. Also, great story that Corey Wagner played his first game in four years. Frio trailed 61-38 at halftime. They cut it to six by the end of the third, and they did this weird thing. They actually started running and just play, playing through the corridor. Like, you're fast. Do something with it. And they finally did. Justin Longyear was saying that may have arisen from the ground being smaller, Norwood basically having no wings. I mean, it's hard to even call it an oval. They call it the parade. I call it the oblong. I think it's just more shaped like a, a racetrack. But whatever it is, it ended up suiting Frio's style when they needed to push it. And I said out loud, thank you. Once I saw them start to play the way they did in 2022, it's, it was glaringly obvious all along, regardless of ground. My problem with it is that they got there because of the ground instead of just this is the right way to play for our personnel. And it makes me think they're not going to do that when 
they're back in more normal surroundings. I guess we'll have to wait to, to see it to believe it one way or the other, but this is the first win that they've had against an actual healthy opposition all year. So that should be a sign, if nothing else. Of course, the Suns did let off second half. SOS, same old Suns. They they were kicking with the wind in the fourth quarter, too, and they couldn't keep up. They had the pressure early. That set the tone. That led to scores. And Jack Lacocious was linking the different parts of the oval again. He kicked 1-4, and they lost by 10. But he was not a reason they lost this game. I thought he actually played really well. And it's not like he... I mean, he might have missed, what, like, one easy shot? He was bombing it from 50 otherwise. And he hit one of those early. Again, yeah, it was the opener. But there were fewer kicks that were penetrating the 450 for Gold Coast. And when Frio tried that, Jai Amos stood up and took a number of contested marks. Liam Henry would not be able to do that. I don't think Liam Henry would get the matchups that he did. Amos had already taken three contested marks before the midpoint of the second quarter. Then... Late in the third, he drew a free kick against Charlie Ballard to put it back within two goals. Fielded a couple important kicks later, gave Frio the lead when, and he set up Matthew Johnson's first AFL goal, which ended up giving Frio the lead with just under seven left. It was a chain that went through Amos after Michael Frederick had a really nice kick to him. Frederick also definitely helped provide that run all over the ground. A welcome addition after missing round four, dealing with the effects of getting his eye poked in the Western Derby. See, it's like, why weren't you playing his strength sooner? And then Amos had Frio's next goal as well, converting from a somewhat difficult angle in the pocket after Hayden Young fed him. He's rolling into a more prominent role, and I can really see that he's bulked up again. I mentioned this before. He looked to be pretty thin for the role that he was playing last year, and I think some of that just came from needing to put more weight on after missing the time he did with his kidney injury. Oh, they took my freaking kidney. We saw something similar from Dustin Martin as well, but I'm hoping that they back in Amos as a key forward ahead of Tabner, ahead of others right now. I think he's only going to get stronger. He kicked 3-2 in this one for eight marks. And when a lot of Frio's best players are a little bit older than him, he's one of their brightest young spots. That's the sort of guy that hopefully they build around and... Remember, I think they kind of set their contention window back a couple years. I assume with the hopes of making it longer or stronger, this is a guy who's part of that window. Looking on the Suns' side, Noah Anderson was the one that I believe gave the Suns their energy in the fourth quarter. He kept up the pace, but he had a miss in the third that would have put the Suns up 28. And then a couple misses after that from... David Swallow and Jack Lacocious kept the game open. Thank you to Ronnie Lerner for reminding me of kind of the way that flowed. We might not have been having this great conversation about Amos had it not been for that miss from Anderson because we could have just been talking about one and four Frio really easily. Speaking of Jack Lacocious, uh, we came up with a nickname for him. You did. Vinda. Like Nick Larky is Suv? Well, Jack Lacocious is Vinda. Also because... Similar to Ryan Tika Masala Gardner, he's like Indian food. He's either really good or really bad with, like, no in-between. And the pendulum can swing with every kick. And something that I don't want to lose in all of this was, who ended up being Frio's best player probably for the third game in a row? Yeah, Caleb Sarong. Um, you, could, you could debate him versus Sean Darcy, but both played quite well. 
I would go with Saran. Eliza Riley from Code Sports said, Darcy, I think you can make a really good case for both of them. I'd back in Sarong. The, the clearances he got were really opportune times and remains one of the best players at working through contests and just congestion. Sarong, 37 disposals and 8 clearances, while Darcy had a behind 48 hitouts, 18 disposals and 9 clearances, all while matched up against the very large net. Moyle, whom he thoroughly beat, hitouts were 58 to 24. I do like watching Moyle, though, because he takes, like, fun angles, kind of like a Draper or Nat Nui. He's obviously got a lot of developing to do, and it's going to be tough behind Jared Witts. But some club is going to make something out of that guy. I see the potential. Lockie Schultz, who was actually called Schultz instead of Schultz. Three goals, two behinds, 20 disposals, and eight marks. He's been one of the guys that's performed above expectations for Frio so far this year, and frankly, there aren't that many of them. Uh, Hayden Young, 18 disposals and 528 meters gained. I was critical of Young early. He worked into the game really well in the second half and remains an accurate kick over the full field. Brennan Cox, 14 disposals and 11 intercepts. You had asked at one point, like, if Frio not controlling possession as much kind of let their defense get exposed a bit more, and I think that's a fair thing to, to consider. Michael Walters, four goals in the behind. I think, you know... It's unfortunate what injuries have done to Matt Taverner, but Michael Walters has aged really well. Here's my stat that concerns me about Frio is they only forced 51 turnovers. There weren't a lot of turnovers altogether. They only committed 57, but that just isn't conducive to their style. And that's why I think them running was mostly a matter of we have no other option. I mean... On a normal round, I guess they could do some running along the wings, but I love that they took it through the corridor. And that they did it against a team with such good midfielders tells you, you can do this against anybody. And then, as you suggested, you could still have that wing option going through Michael Frederick, Ethan Hughes, Nathan O'Driscoll when he gets healthy. Sun's stats of note, Tuke Miller had 26 disposals, 8 clearances, and 8 tackles. Noah Anderson kicked 2-1 from 25 and gained 552 meters, their biggest mover in the fourth quarter. David Small kicked 3-1. Those three goals were all in the first half, and that ties his career high. He had 20 disposals and 10 marks. Lockie Weller also had 20 disposals and gained 490 meters. Jack Lacocious' stats are inflated by the length of his kicks because otherwise you wouldn't get 725 meters out of him. You mentioned that he kicked 1-4. He had 19 disposals, 13 score involvements, and 12 marks, so he was relevant outside of just making those long kicks. And Matt Rowell finally had a double-digit tackle game, 11 tackles. He's getting more of the ball as well, had 17 touches. One of the highlights of Gold Coast for this year is that Rowell is showing more facets of his game. By the way, this was such a perfect venue for this game in particular. Neither club has a super huge following. I mean, Frio's support is decent, but outside of the West, it's not going to be amazing. Gold Coast obviously has the smallest fan base, and this place was packed. It was like the, just the perfect size for this game. I mean, best case scenario with this matchup, say you're playing it at 3-0, and it's a super huge late season game, the finals on the line or something, maybe, you get, what, 40,000? They're still 37. That's still going to have, what, 20,000 empty seats? Whereas this was like exactly the right number of seats. At most, you could have used like Two or three thousand more. So that really contributed to the atmosphere for this game, I thought. 
right after this game, I tweeted asking Dockers fans to give their instant reactions, and we said we'd feature them in the recap. I kind of blanked out of when we had first recorded this, even though I had thought about it, like, mid-discussing this game. That's what I get for recording at, like, 2 a.m. I'd probably forget it any time of day, but I wanted to do this because they've been such an interesting team, not always for the right reasons this year, mostly for the wrong reasons, but also they've had just, like, a super responsive fan base that has been super active on Twitter and is probably a bit disproportionately represented on our feed, but it's a lot of fun to talk with Dockers fans. So I'm just going to share a few of the responses we got. Trisha Greeny said, ups and downs, many ups and downs. Alarming times, defense to gone to crap. What? Followed by euphoric times. Sonny, Jackson, Jono, Brody, Amos, Ryan, etc. Sir Ralph, it's odd. Flying Mantle 2023. Carla Guy, my head still pounding. I am exhausted, elated, confused, proud. Can't wait to watch the replay and feel it all again. Kevin Monroe, it's bloody hard to be a Docker supporter. Turnbull M3, or they call me Jimmy. Lucky, lucky, lucky. 15 minutes of a purple patch saved us. Given the teams were coming up, I remain fearful. I mean, there's a chance they can be like 3-8 and eight in a few weeks. Hawthorne's their one easy game in the next few rounds, but... I think they'll win at least one other coming up now that they've shown they can do it. Not that they beat a great team, but that they rallied from down 23 and a half with their backs against the wall. It's kind of a defining win. Bulldogs at Brisbane, Hawks at Sydney, Geelong at Melbourne, by Richmond. So uh, yeah, it's it's about to be on. They do not have a forgiving schedule. Lee Howard, fan of the ninth-ranked East Carolina Pirates baseball team. They're having a hell of a year. He said the game started in turn when Will Brody came on. Very happy for the win, but Gold Coast are struggling, and we struggled to get the win. Dockers need to build on those last two quarters and get their confidence back. He also said he couldn't help but wonder why Brody would be held out of the prior two games while Matt Taberner got to stay in and only was out this week because of injuries. Also said that Sturt shouldn't have been out there for two years, and... He had just assumed that under Longmere's doghouse, there's a dungeon where certain players go to rot. Richmond, 11-12-78, defeated by Sydney, 18-14-122. Tigers trailed 47-26 and half and fell into a 28-point hole early in the third, and then got it all the way down to six, and then completely lost all composure, while Tom Papley, who likes to celebrate, had six goals. Yeah, Tom Papley likes to celebrate. Do we need to say it again? Because I think BT did. It was this week, so the Pies still have a chance. I mean, they do. And I'm glad you mentioned it. I mentioned how young Adelaide's list was this round. The Swans actually fielded the youngest team of the Gather Round. They have 14 players with fewer than 100 games experience and an average age of 24 with just one player in his 30s, that being Luke Parker. Though, a couple days after the game, Robbie Fox also turned 30. And also remember, the Swans were without both McCartans and lost another tall on the other end of the ground in the second quarter. Yeah, Joel Lamardi looks like he's going to be out for a couple months, so that seems like it's more than just a pulled hamstring, you know, probably a tear, which the way he reacted, it didn't look like it was more than a pull, so that's, that's surprising and unfortunate. I mean, he's had a history of hamstring issues, though, so 
every time you see something that's more minor, you can understand why he's out for longer. Got to really test that strength before he gets back in. Hopefully it doesn't end up like uh, Luke Shuey, for example, where it takes so much time out of his later career. Amarty is a last name from Ghana that translates to damn good at footy. And we're finally starting to, to see more of it. Well, not for the next bit, sadly. I was hoping that he would just miss next week and then come back in after that and then play really well because I enjoy his game and then be managed for round 16. Glad Geelong won't have to face him. Not so glad about why it happened. And Amarty had two goals before he injured that hamstring as well. He really just picked up, like, it was the same form you saw from him in that Hawthorne game. He looked really good. Something I really noticed about this game. Every week when I read off the Swan stats, it's like they have midfielders with a ton of disposals and clearances. And it's one of those things where it's like, blink and you miss it because their midfield moves so fast off of the center bounce. And it's a bunch of really quick exchanges. And it's one of those things that, like, if you're not watching closely or if you're writing down the last score in your notes like we do, it's very easy to miss. And it's why, like, as someone who you know, first two years watching footy didn't have a ton of appreciation for midfield play, like, it's easy to overlook. Whereas now that we have more of an idea of what we're looking for, it it's just like, whoa, they're quick. And you often have to end up asking me, like, hey, who was that again? Yeah, which I think that reflects pretty well on them. It might reflect poorly on us. I think it reflects more well on them, though. I would hope. Now, you mentioned Richmond did kick their way back into it in the third quarter, but during that stretch, they made their substitution, bringing in Morris Reilly Jr. for Trent Cotton. I was surprised that Morris got in, considering his VFL form hadn't been great. But I was more surprised that it was Cotton who was the one that was subbed down, and there was no clear injury there. And you could tell that something was really missing once he went out. There was a clear lack of leadership in the midfield and really the forward two-thirds as a whole because Toby Nankervis is out as well, Tom Lynch too. They lost a lot of direction without Cotchen, and you could really see the effect of that in the fourth quarter. There was no composure whatsoever. They started giving away stupid 50s and dumb free kicks and just completely lost any semblance of composure. And that was the game. Yeah, I think uh, Damian Hardwick did end up needing a couple of joints after that one. That was one of the other highlights of the round, him saying that during his pregame interview. That was one of the, like, I had to go back and watch a couple times. Like, wait, did he really just say that? That was, that was really funny. He's going to have a great post-coaching media career. We know that. I think he is super entertaining. His comments were in reference to what the broadcast team was for the game, I believe. Yes, that, that is what it was. Gold of the stuff. His team's performance, though, not. And they were the worst team in the rain as well. The rain picked up in the final 10 minutes or so. Richmond trailed by a couple of goals and didn't score again once the wind and rain really started picking up. Again, they trailed 75-69 and then 90-78 after Jack Revolt goal. By the way, Jack Revolt had one of the images of the year with an insane amount of blood coming down his face. He went up for a ball against, it was Hayden McLean, I believe, and his fist ended up getting forced back into his own face. Yeah, he basically punched himself in the face. He ended up needing like seven staples in his forehead, 
and that he stayed in the game was insane. He was appropriating Joel Selwood culture, but he was playing a damn good game, and it's too bad that his fire like inspiring the rest of the team or whatever, but they only trailed 90 to 78 and then gave up the final 32 points, including two more goals to Papley, who likes to celebrate. Yeah, six goals all in the second half. He played a really good game, and I think he didn't even did a great job compensating for Amarty's absence by just playing into, all right, we've got all these small forwards. We're going to try to get him to leak out the back. We're going to run, and we're going to create havoc. And it worked. And Papley's just one of those players that just seems like he's the right fit for before wet conditions, which just with how quite literally slippery he can be. He is so hard to tackle. I also do want to say that while they failed to adjust to the smaller forwards after Amarty went out, I thought Richmond's game plan was actually pretty good. Like, they tried to use their size to overwhelm the the McCarkin absence, and they did a good job of it, and then Sydney countered by going speed versus size, because it's not often you have the combination of size and speed. So, I thought this was a well-coached game. I thought just Richmond's players lacked discipline, especially Marlon Pickett, and... I hate to say it because I really like him, but Hugo Ralph Smith was really wild and out of control. Uh, Johnson Clark was kind of shaky. I didn't think Camden McIntosh was that good. And look, the Tigers are 1-3-1 and one against a pretty good schedule, and that one win looks better and better. But it's not going to get much easier for them, considering they've got the Ds next. Then it softens up a bit with the Suns and the Eagles, although that Suns game, it's a marvel. Oh, shit. But I think Dim is going to need more than pop to get through that. They, I don't think they need to press the panic button. I think the issue is just they're doing a lot of the same stuff they did last year in terms of lacking composure, which is just so unlike them. And I would not be playing Marlon Pickett next week. I would probably not be playing my guy Hugo as much as I love watching him. I would be backing in Samson Ryan. He didn't really jump out, but he had... A game of almost, there were just a couple connections and marks that he couldn't stick, and the blueprint is there for him to be a really important player, a potential successor to Tom Lynch, perhaps. I feel like it was a good rough-around-the-edges game, as opposed to Ralph Smith's uh, untidiness, which was just rough further in than the edges. I think they really miss Josh Gibbs right now. I'd like to see Tyler Sonzi incorporated more because I like him. He, I didn't even realize he was in the lineup. Way to go. Also, Noah Balta continues to just show, like, zero awareness. It's like someone went into the video game, went into his stats, and edited his awareness and dropped it down to, like, Darcy McPherson levels. The one individual for the Swans that I still think has flied under the radar these past couple years because he's just not one of the names that instantly pops out is Nick Blakey. And with Callum Mills spending more and more time in the back in this game. He ended up being one-on-one with Dustin Martin for a decent amount of it. Did a nice job, but Blakey was even more of that that slingshot and length throughout the ground. He was Sydney's disposal leader with 30. He had 13 intercept possessions and gained 524 meters. Just that accelerator and positive passage starter from halfback that we really enjoy. Chad Warner kicked 1-3 from 26 disposals, 7 he had seven clearances and gained 649 meters, probably motivated by playing with his brother Corey for the first time at AFL level. Corey kicked a goal on debut. 
and Chad wasn't on the field to celebrate with him. The Swans' leading ground gainer, though, was Errol Golden with 744 meters gained from 25 disposals. He was another one where it was like, I had to check a bunch of times, like, wait, who did that? Wait, can you miss him? Having super bright shoes helped. Jake Lloyd also had 25 disposals at 10 intercept possessions, so he and Blakey were leaders in that regard. Braden Campbell had a goal for 20 disposals and 511 meters. I mentioned Mills already as playing more in the back, but he did venture forward for one goal. He had eight marks, did well to, to keep Dustin Martin out of things. Peter Laddams did more off of immediate ruck contests, which was nice to see if you're a Swans fan. I'm still not a fan of him, but eight clearances is good. Isaac Heaney kicked two goals from 20 disposals, but he has some stiffness in his neck, and so scans were fine, but he's still likely a test for next round. And then, of course, Tom Papley. 6-2 from 25 disposals and 686 meters gained. I think he is going to really cause Geelong trouble this time, because he certainly did not in the grand final. And I know you took particular joy in him scoring a late goal and him not having anything to celebrate. I'll get into Geelong's defense later, but it's nice to know that he'll be a focal point. He's not sneaking up on anybody. He's still going to catch somebody holding the ball, probably. Liam Baker led Richmond with 35 disposals. He gained 586 meters. He also had a goal to behind. Tim Taranto a behind in 34 disposals. Jacob Hopper, 32 disposals. Daniel Rioli, 22 disposals. Noah Balta, for his lack of awareness, still had 20 disposals and 10 intercepts. And Noah Cumberland kicked 2-1 with eight tackles. And I just continue to ask, why were you trying to just have him be Dustin Martin's understudy when he's got his own unique skill set and should be in your best 22 regardless? The thing that I've been thinking about Balsa these past couple games is he's clearly he's clearly not used to being, you know, the guy back there or one of the two guys along with Dylan Grimes. He needs to have better support in order to play that front and back role and play it intelligently. And yeah, that's really where Josh Gibkiss and Robbie Tarrant both being out really hurts. Gibkiss might still be a month away. Um, Holy shit. I was looking through Richmond's list and I just learned they have a guy named Steely Green. That's not Shadow Brain, but that's really good. A little more about him. He was named after the band Steely Dan, which is his mother's favorite. And, and he was struck by lightning while sailing. What a fucking badass. I I think I'm going to be yelling for him to be in the lineup every week, just like I do with Jason Gilby. And probably Shadow Brain. Yeah, I mean, Brain, I get it, because Brisbane's so stacked as is. Speaking of Brisbane, I pretty much watched none of their game to kick off the Saturday slate. I was in a fundraiser for the Gagafel, or GGAFL, the local Australia rules chapter it was a lot of fun. Got to meet a bunch of people who actually understand the sport, which is tough to do. It was just fun shooting the shit, talking with people. I will definitely be more involved with them moving forward, whether that's writing about them or just going out to have a kick sometimes. Anyway, I have no interest in going back to rewatch this game other than maybe the first quarter and a half and just to see what the game looked like at such a small venue. It was Brisbane 22-20-152, defeating North Melbourne 12-7-77. Benjamin, take it from here. Firstly, I think the setup at Mount Barker was really good. It almost reminded me of like a like a decently sized high school football stadium with the feel of the stands, 
and just it being, you know, looking like a proper community venue. The ground was in really nice condition. Sonia Hood was very praiseworthy of the setup and pretty much everything but the outcome of the game itself. And hopefully one of the things that happens as a result of the gather round is that we see more and more regional sites get this treatment courtesy of the AFL because improving conditions of those grounds could really help grow the game in those areas. It's tough because you probably want one that's more Norwood-sized in terms of capacity or you'd have to bring in a bunch of temporary seats or something, but this was a really cool concept and I wish they got a better game. I mean, the first quarter was fun. Teams ended up even at 5-1-31. Jaden Stevenson was prominent early on. Seems like Alistair Clarkson is really starting to unlock his talents. Maybe he just needed the, the right coach to, to rein him in mentally because we've seen the raw talent between his time at Collingwood and in the previous years at North. So hopefully that's able to stick. His four goals led North, but really didn't look like anyone was leading North after the first bit of the second quarter. Didn't help that Jai Simpkin likely broke his hand was getting that worked on early in the second quarter, went to the rooms and was subbed out at halftime. By then, Brisbane already led 66-43, to and then they kicked seven goals to two in the third, and were still pretty wasteful. They kicked 7-7, but they were doubling up north by then, and really it didn't end up mattering after that. What I will say, Brisbane just flipped the switch and actually started pressuring properly in the middle of the second quarter, kind of around the time that Simpkin went out. So maybe that was a side effect of Simkin's absence as well. The pressure being able to go up, but the Lions scored 116 points from turnovers, which is a mind-boggling stat. The mind boogles. And that turnover total came from that pressure and also consistent intercept play from their backs. They were present in marking from the onset of the game. I noted Dara Joyce early on, which was really nice because I hadn't thought very highly of his first few games, but... He had three intercept marks in the first quarter alone. My concern for North is that... Oh, can I... I wanted to say one, one more thing for Sure. More active gains from Joe Danaher and Eric Hipwood as well. They combined for nine goals. Danaher's been more involved in general since re-emerging as the secondary ruck. So, I'm sorry, Darcy Fort. That's going to make it even more difficult for you to have a steady slot in there. But the line that ended up impressing me the most, really in the first half, because that was when really mattered was Lincoln McCarthy, who who in the first half alone had 10 disposals, four inside 50s, five score involvements, and two goal assists. The stats just confirmed the vision that he was playing a bit further back and was able to link halfback with the forward two-thirds. And I mean, that stat haul was already better than his prior full games this year. If he can add a bit more intercept play, then you can really do that. Or at the very least, you could have him be that link along with guys like Darcy Wilmot, who kicked a really nice goal on the boundary as well when he ventured forward. My concern with North is that they got beat like this with Stevenson having a good game because he's not what I would call a consistent player. And Harry Sheasel also finally looked human at times. He was just constantly under pressure, as was the rest of North, and that showed. Still, a goal, 31 disposals, and 525 meters. That's a bad day for him. Jack Siebel, 24 disposals, 9 intercept, 582 meters gained. Luke Davies-Uniak, 23 disposals and 7 clearances. 
and Daniel Howe, 23 disposals. Now is the part where I really want to see what direction North go in. How do they respond to this? How do they respond to three losses in a row? How does Alistair Clarkson respond? Did he choose to kind of stick it to the guys? Does he take a caring, nurturing approach? Does he stay as invested? Because it can be tough when you're a coach so accustomed to success. But I think that's the least of the concern. I think he's going to stay engaged. I just, I want to see how they respond. Next week, they're at Gold Coast. Week after that, they play the Demons at the G. Then they have the Saints at Marvel. Then they're back in Tasmania for Port Adelaide. Then the Swans. Then Collingwood. Then Essendon, which now actually looks like a tough game. More on that in a second. And just, this could be a long losing streak. So how do they respond? That's going to tell us if this is the same old North. Lockie Neal led the way in this game with 37 disposals, 13 clearances, and 12 score involvements. That is an insane stat line. Yes, against North, but still leading the way all over the Oval. He had 11 disposals and four center clearances in the first quarter alone when this game was competitive. 12 score involvements when your only actual score was behind, and even when Simpkin went down to get 13 clearances against that midfield, I think considering everything, that's one of the best performances for a player in a single game so far this year. Josh Dunkley at 25 disposals, Will Ashcroft 23. Dane Zorko scored 1-1 from 22. He also had 10 score involvements, had 8 marks and 3 assists. He's playing more forward again, and that's right for his game. Zach Bailey didn't end up kicking a goal with two behinds, but 21 disposals and 9 score involvements. A more active and on-ball game for him, which we hadn't seen much of this year, so hopefully he continues positively. Hugh McCloyage kicked 1-1 from 21 disposals. He had 12 score involvements. Easy for a lot of guys to have a lot of score involvements when you have, you know, 42 scores. Joe Danaher kicked 5-3, had 13 marks. Eric Hipwood kicked 4-2 from 10 marks. Charlie Cameron also had four goals. He kicked 4-1. And from the back, another good game out of Harris. Andrews still has to be that main guy. 14 disposals and 10 intercepts. He had a better support system this game. That's got to stick for them to succeed. In this upcoming stretch they have, after they go to Canberra for Anzac round, they've got Frio at Carlton, Essendon at Adelaide. One last stat from this game that is really telling. Brisbane's 66.7% efficiency inside 50 to North's 38.1. Now this here was the biggest shock of the round, I'd say. Essendon 15-14-104, defeating Melbourne 11-11-77. Essendon won the tall battle, and that was made easier by a couple outs. Ben Brown being a late out on the forward side, and also Jake Lever missing with an ankle injury. And that allowed Sam Draper and Andrew Phillips to put up their best goal hauls. And really, that was what ended up defining the game throughout the kind of that early that early win for Essendon's Tulls and Melbourne not being able to keep up. They looked frazzled defensively without Lever. And I'm starting to think more and more that, you know, for so long we thought of Stephen May as being the most important piece of the puzzle defensively, but May doesn't operate nearly as well without Lever there with him. And he, for good reason, doesn't trust Adam Tomlinson nearly as much. But the point stands. Lever appears to be the most important one in that Melbourne defensive group. I think May is still super critical to the structure 
But I think from a skill standpoint, I think Leeward's the guy. Tomlinson cannot fight against pressure at all. I think I mentioned to you, Ethan, and online as well, made me think back to round 12 of last year against Sydney when May missed with a concussion. It was, I think, in the week after that game that he ended up getting punched out by Jake Melksham, who was the late into this game. But in that one, Adam Tomlinson got burned by Sam Reed for three goals in the first half. He got burned about that same amount in the first half in this one. And turnovers in his own 50, just the amount of people on Twitter saying he should be dropped, you know, it was warranted. And I don't like piling on a player, but it was very bad. And that's an obvious fix is just to not include him in next week's team or any team moving forward. If Lever or Michael Hibbert are healthy, it's going to be an easy choice. Essendon weren't kicking super accurately. They kicked 9-10-64 for the first half, but still led by 17 and kicked a little bit more accurately after that. A 21-2 third quarter was what really put this game out of reach. You know, Melbourne being held to two scoring shots in a quarter and having a goalless quarter, just considering their consistency, seems really, really surprising and uncharacteristic. And I think this game just revealed some cracks with them all together, which, look, those are things that, again, you don't want to look flawless early in the season. I'd much rather be in the position they're in right now than they than the position they were in at this time last year in terms of, like, your hopes of winning a flag. Because you don't want to hit your stride this early. I mean, you'd rather be winning still, but... There was warranted criticism of Brody Grundy on the defensive end as well. Wasn't able to get back and play get and play against Essendon's tolls all that well. And then also don't lose sight of Charlie Spargo's importance because he got concussed and was subbed out at halftime. Yeah, that's a guy that I have definitely taken for granted, where it's like, we know he's solid, but I didn't think like, oh yeah, this guy is indispensable, but he, he does a lot of important things. Can link to Kazi Pickett and Cade Chandler in addition to the full forward tolls. And I think Chandler's gonna end up really needing to be the one to I'll make up for his absence this coming Monday for Anzac Eve. I think my biggest positive takeaway for the D's out of this game was even though he didn't play great, Jacob Van Royen still looked like he belonged out there, whereas some young guys, even with super high-end talent, on bad days, they look like they shouldn't be there at all, like a lot of the young guys for Richmond this round, for example. So for him to just show, even on a bad day, He's a competent adult. That's that's significant. But overall, Essendon outworked and outpressured Melbourne, and they were able to repeatedly get inside 50s, whether it was through the air or on the ground. Kyle Langford tended to be there a lot. He really completes Essendon's forward third, and there's a clear difference to how the Bombers perform as a whole when he's in versus when he's out. It was Dyson Heppel's best game of the year. He played the full game, had 16 disposals, all but one of them were effective, had seven marks and four tackles. And then Nick Hyde had a really good impact as a sub, ended up kicking two goals for the first time as a bomber. Don't think of him as much of a scorer at all, but he came in for Harry Jones and was able to provide some of that flexibility, running kind of from more of a midfield to half forward spot. And his strength and pace helped keep Melbourne out of touch. I think at times, Hyde is just kind of redundant to have alongside Mason Redmond. So to see him playing well, I think that provides a huge lift. Whether it's that he's going to kind of be a 
regular sub for them, which I could totally see happening or whatever they plan to do with him. Because it looks like he wasn't always just a defender early in his career. So he's not that running ability. So I think that's a guy that can fit really well in the sub role, whether it's you need to bring him in for an injury or you just want to get in some extra speed and energy. So I wouldn't be shocked if he becomes this year's Toby Bedford. You hear broadcasters say at least like once per round, you don't want to be too good in the sub role or else they're going to put you there all the time. I, I think he may be the perfect guy for that role. The big issue for Essendon, though, is that Zach Merritt, their captain who led the way with 35 disposals and gained 550 meters, is as of now suspended for Anzac Day because of a late dangerous tackle of Tom Sparrow in the final few minutes. The Bombers are appealing, but I think it's going to be hard to get this graded any less than careless conduct, medium impact, and high contact. He did pull Sparrow down from the neck, and I think with the force with which it was applied, it makes sense. As unfortunate as it is, I agree with the call. You make a good point. The Bombers are appealing. After this performance, I'm actually like enjoying what they're doing, and it's... Probably the most excited I've been for the Anzac Day matchup, and I'm excited for things like Dreamtime in a few weeks as well, where they've got the long head-to-head losing streak. Like, I'm not going to go out of my way and say, oh yeah, this is definitely a finals team, but the pieces are there. I still have some doubts about their defense and thought, like, Brandon Zirk Thatcher didn't have a particularly good game, that they only allowed 77 with some of those defensive pieces struggling. I think is a testament to their midfield. And the midfield certainly did perform along with Merritt. Darcy Parrish had 34 disposals against 602 meters. Dylan Shield had 28 disposals. Sam Durham, 24. Andrew McGrath, 24 with nine intercepts and 506 meters gained. He is a super versatile player. I really like him. Has become one of those halfback accelerators in links. And Brad Scott's backed him in there at halfback and the Bombers are all the better for it. Will Setterfield also had 19 disposals and an octopus. And Will Snelling also had 10 tackles. Defensively, Mason Redmond gained 602 meters from 16 disposals. Jordan Ridley had 23 disposals and gained 505 meters. Their leading interceptor, though, was Jaden Laverde with 8 marks, 10 intercepts. It's good to see different players from Essendon be that leading interceptor from time to time. Sometimes it's been Ridley, sometimes Brandon Zirk Thatcher. This week, it was Jaden Laverde. And I mentioned Whiteford earlier. He kicked 2-1 from 16 disposals and had three assists as well. Thanks to performances from Centerfield and Snelling, Essendon were also plus 16 in tackle, 71-55. to Clayton Oliver, maybe I should have drafted him first instead of Rory Laird. Uh, I mean, after the first quarter, maybe you wouldn't think that. 41 disposals and nine clearances. Jack Viney behind, 28 disposals, 490 meters gained. Christian Petraka, 1-2, 27 disposals, 11 clearances, 529 meters. Ed Langdon, 24 disposals, 549 meters. And Harrison Petty, 17 disposals and 12 intercepts. How the D's respond to this one is going to be telling. I really want to watch in the coming weeks for, like, what do they do to change up stylistically? Because in the last couple of years, we really haven't seen any sort of stretch where they've tried to change up their system they've been very set in their ways now they could totally win the next four after richmond it's north at gold coast and hawthorne 
but it's going to be about how they play rather than what the results are for me in the coming weeks. Don't forget, you can find us on Twitter at Americans Footy. I'm on Twitter at Castle Media. I'm on Twitter at BenjaminHK01. Brian Harambe, the footy cat, is sleeping right next to Ethan right now. He's been out for probably about half an hour at this point. You can find him on Instagram at catnamedgrian. He just looks really happy right now, and I take a lot of photos of him either sleeping or lying on his back. We're also on YouTube at Americans Footy, and I'll be putting up some more non-podcast videos up there in the coming weeks. We jump back in with the final Saturday game, one that was Saturday for pretty much the entire world. If you're really close to the international dateline, maybe not. And if you're listening from somewhere really weird, really close to the international dateline, please tell us because I think that's super cool. If somebody listening from like one of the Diabetes Islands, that would be fucking awesome. Port Adelaide 10-10-70, defeating Western Bulldogs 8-8-56. Port trailed 48-46 after three. The... Rain was a big story in this game because it was a major fucking downpour. Like, it rained really hard at times during the Sydney-Richmond game. This took it to a new level. By about 10 minutes from bounce, it was loud enough that you could regularly hear it on the broadcast for most of the rest of the game, and Anthony Hudson pointed that out very quickly. You can hear it for a bit in the Sydney-Richmond game, but not to this level, and I gotta say, considering the conditions, this game actually wasn't terribly ugly. Like, obviously, the rain played a factor. Score was at a premium because of it. But this was much more watchable than some of the bad weather games where it's just like, you're watching because the weather's so bad. This was, look, this, this wasn't Cairns footy at the point. See, Cairns footy is fun, is the thing. Whereas, like, if you had this style of game in normal conditions, you'd probably be like, eh, that wasn't great, but it wasn't, you know, unwatchable. So, again, considering conditions, pretty good, but Port took the final quarter 24-8 to win. They kicked four straight, and it was really one defender, one midfielder, and one forward that carried them to that win. From the back, Alir Alir, who was playing through what looked like some hamstring trouble or calf trouble at one point, and I thought was a little bit kind of just behind the game for a while, didn't seem to be at 100% effort-wise even, which seems strange, but he really turned it on down the stretch. And he'd also maybe had some issues with one of his fingers during the game as well because he got his fingers taped a quarter time. Yeah, something might have been dislocated or broken. I don't know what, but it wasn't enough to stop him. He turned it on when he needed to, as did a couple other players. Jason Horn Francis, there was a cool moment after the game seeing him and Ken Hinckley talking and... Broadcasters kind of guessing what it was. And I think the consensus was something like, seeing this is what you're capable of, keep playing like this. And up front, it was Todd Marshall who played a really nice fourth quarter. He had a, the go-ahead goal from 44 meters out with 11-19 left. And that wasn't on an easy angle either. No, it was, it was really nice. And then Xavier Dersma scored off a hold and a late lazy kick by Tim O'Brien got taken away by Zach Butters, who ran it in to stretch the lead to 15. That pretty much ended the game with three and a half to go. Butters was probably the best player throughout the whole game in this one, I would say. So it was fitting that he ended up getting to ice this game. I think you could also make a case for Tim English, who 
I have just been so impressed by this year. I mean, we saw it last year. We knew he was good, but he's on a different level right now. And I think in part because of him and in part because of Cody Waitman, it felt to me like a game that the Bulldogs should have won. Or at least I was thinking up until maybe the last like four or five minutes, like this is a game the dogs should still win. As weird as that sounds. Because like, I wasn't sure how to define it. Like the week before, for some reason, even like once they had gotten that 20 point lead down to a couple goals, it felt like, okay, for some reason, Porter going to win this game. And I felt that way about the Bulldogs. And I don't know. I don't know what it was that made me feel that way. Maybe just their list looked more complete. You had a little bit of a smaller forward option in Waitman, who may have had the most exciting first touch of the season out of anybody. There was a really good mark at the start of the very first game of the season as well. So I'm not, I'm not sure. Oh, I think it was a, what a shock. It was probably by uh, Shea Bolton. Okay, yeah, but... Waitman kicked four, and we've talked a lot about how he and Aaron Naughton play off each other sometimes in the forward third, and you saw a bit of that in this one. But going back to the better players for for Port, because I think Port's individuals were more impactful, I'm glad you mentioned Dersma not just because he kicked that goal, but because he also helped defensively going back from that when it looked like Aaron Naughton was going to put it back within a goal. Alir ended up stopping Naughton with a tackle in the goal square, and Dersma held the rush it through to keep it at nine points. So good to see Dersma have some more impact in the back. And then other players purport by whom I was impressed. Darcy Byrne Jones all of a sudden is playing half forward, and it is working. He was a really good pressure player in this one, and also ended up kicking two goals, which was a first for him, and he's played over 150 games. And Jed McAtee continued to to grow into the forward half as well. I did like his game. Defensively, Alir was supported by Miles, not to be confused with Jason Horn Francis or his brother Miller Bergman, as well as Dylan Williams, who played his first game in a couple years last week, and again, looks more comfortable in this one, despite the conditions. I was not very impressed with Bergman most of the game, and then he had, I believe it was a really big intercept late in the third quarter, and it was just... Like, oh, hey, I finally get to say something nice about this guy. That's good. And I think that was that was a significant turning point. Just having a guy who had been struggling step it up like that. I'm going to say something about the Bulldogs that I don't usually say. So please pay very close attention. This is groundbreaking. This is revolutionary. Their star players were really good. And they got basically no depth contributions. And it didn't help that Bazalika's hurt and didn't make the trip. That said, his absence wasn't as much of a story as it was last year because, like, when he had been hurt last year, it was such a big deal because he had been playing so well, whereas... And also, he was suspended for a headbutt and then the coke. Yeah, but even even when he missed games just because he had, like, a, a leg injury or whatever, it was huge news, whereas now it's just, you know... I mean, it's not ideal, but it's not the be-all and end-all. I think... Tim English is the one where it's like, if something happened to him, it would be earth-shattering. The one guy that I guess you could consider a depth piece, although I wouldn't at this point, because I think he's established himself really well, or re-established himself, is Liam Jones. Again, the tandem of him and Ed Richards has started to develop really nicely, Jones being a steady interceptor alongside him. 
and they'll both need to be a bit more of a focus these next couple weeks, even more so than they already are, with Josh Bruce being hurt. Bruce was subbed out after copying a rib injury. He has already flown back to Melbourne, so he'll be missing next week, along with probably the week after that, too. And note on the other sub as well, Scott Lysette was subbed out for Jackson Mead shortly after halftime. Another really low-impact game for him. And so what did Port do? Ended up splitting the ruck duties between other talls, with Charlie Dixon taking the most of them. We've seen this work before for them. Now, I could definitely see Port naming another Ruckman in place of Scott Lysette next week. They do have Brid Teagle and Sam Purple Hayes on their list. I liked Teagle a lot in the one game he played, and then he broke his collarbone. He was the midseason draftee last year, right? Yes, he was. And don't forget, he did come back to play against Richmond in round 21. But yeah, I was very entertained by him and very impressed by how quickly he was up to speed. So and more of him would be would be an easy selection, I think. But yeah, he Lysette got it handed to him by English. And he hasn't been an effective player in other parts of the Oval. So it's time. This game, though, turned on clearance success. And even though the Bulldogs ended up plus one, Port had nine of 10 in the most important stretch in the fourth quarter. They had nine of 10 leading up to that Xavier Dersma goal that brought it out to 10 points with about nine and a half minutes left. I am critical of Ken Hinckley, but I will say this. His players seem to really, really like him. Just seeing, you know, everyone dapping each other up after the game. It's like, you can tell there is a genuine connection there. And I don't think that's the most important thing for a contending team. I think for a bad team, that's great. And maybe he could end up coaching Gold Coast at some point. But part of the battle, maybe not maybe not as much as half the battle, but part of the battle as a coach is having guys enjoy playing for you and guys that want to be with you. And they definitely have that. I just, I don't think his actual coaching is that good, but I like the relationship and connections that he has there. You know, guys play harder when you have that. Stats for Port Adelaide, Zach Butters, a goal behind, 32 disposals, 7 clearances, 565 meters gained. Connor Rosie, 26 disposals, 549 meters. Ollie Wines, 26 disposals at a rectangular head. You say this every time and it still gets me. I left it out a couple times. I feel like saying it every time would get annoying. So doing it like most of the time, but not all the time is the move. Dan Houston, a goal, a behind, 22 disposals, 677 meters gained. I didn't think he played that well, honestly. I just noted him for being a really long kick. Alier with those 11 intercepts despite struggling for a lot of three quarters. Or Adelaide, even in these conditions, 47.4% efficiency inside 50. Bulldogs, 33.3, which, I mean, conditions aren't all of that. Some of it's on them. One other thing that surprised me, Port had more than twice as many kicks to handball, 217 to 106, which in wet conditions really surprises me. I would think, you know, you'd be handballing and playing the game along the ground much more. So that was, that was maybe the most surprising stat I found. Like most of the stats that catch my attention, it's like, oh, well, that explains that, even if it's a really staggering number, whereas this, like, this was... A bit more unusual. And yet it worked for them. So 
clean hands despite the conditions, a good size that they can play in the wet, whereas, you know, some teams like Frio last year just can't. Adam Trelore led the dogs with 35 disposals. He also had eight clearances. Jason Johannesson had 28, his most disposals since round 11 of 2019, so the most that he's been involved on the ball in the three-plus years we've been watching. He also had 10 intercepts. In his 200th game, Toblin Rattori had 27 disposals. He and his father are just the fifth father-son pairing to both play 200 games for the same team. Jack McRae had 24 disposals. In the back, Ed Richards had 22 disposals in 600 meters. Liam Jones had 15 disposals at 13 intercepts. I mentioned that Cody Waitman kicked four goals. He kicked 4-2. And Marcus Bonapelli was the workhorse that he always is. A goal from 23 disposals and 12 clearances. Had some full forward time in addition to the normal midfield work. Cool to have a taller midfielder that's able to split time like that and be effective in both spots. Sunday started with the Castle Cup. Let's see if we talk about this game as briefly as we talked about the round 23 meeting last year. I think it'll be a little longer than that, but not by much. The Cats had a 9-1 second quarter. The game was over after. It was over during the second quarter. Heck, how early did AFLX score call this game? About halfway through quarter number two, which was funny because then you had what happened in the Collingwood St. Kilda game, where they said it's over and then... It almost wasn't, but Geelong got off to another slow start, trailed 14-0 after a little more than seven minutes of clock time, and that's something that needs to be cleaned up. Slow starts the last couple weeks. Can't do that against good teams. Putting yourself in a two- or three-goal hole will not work, but they then outscored him 33-1 to the rest of the quarter. Ollie Henry scored from 46 on the siren after an Elliot Yo turnover to make it 33-15, to and in the second quarter was a nice 56 to 10 and it was I didn't get to like enjoy this in full because I was doing some work at that time doing like a quick write-up on some of the stuff that happened in the Warriors Kings game one like the beam Caps led 89 to 25 at one point let their foot off the gas after that and there are some fans complaining about it you know not just you can't give up this many goals to this team but the percentage implications. Final was Geelong 21-10-136, defeating West Coast 13-11-89. Good on the good on the Eagles for continuing to compete despite the margin. Good to see Ruben Jinby kick his first goal. The team really get around him for that. Oscar Allen with four more goals in this one. The Cats seem to struggle to match up against him at times. I think a lot of it was. A, checking out mentally and B, playing it safe after Tyson Stengel broke his wrist in a Josh Rotham tackle. Seems, seems that he actually broke uh, broke the, his radius, so maybe a little higher up. Regardless, medium term out. As is Reese Stanley, who ended up kind of getting fallen on by Connor West after a stoppage. I totally missed that. Yeah, he suffered an orbital fracture. So uh, not bring John Segler back in. What other choice do you have? I think Shannon Neal's still hurt. Roll with Blitzovs. Blitzovs and what? Hawkins in the forward 50. Blitzovs, I, I Hawkins to Koning. Against the Swans? I mean, with the Swans' lack of talls right now, maybe? I don't know. I think we'll really need to see what Buddy's status is. Blitzovs had 27 of Geelong's 62 hitouts. He also kicked two goals, which is damning that the Eagles gave that up. He is not a good kick. 
And if you're giving up two goals to him, it means it means he's getting way too good of the of an opportunity against you. And that's, you know, despite Tom Barris being back there, you know, a lot of people say that he's better off without Jeremy McGovern. I'm not wrongly disagree. Yeah, I'm not sold on that. If somehow, you know, the 30 or so extra points of the cats allowed end up hurting at the end of the season percentage wise, you can come back and circle this fine. But otherwise, I'm not going to worry about it. I think they did what they needed to. After that, it became, all right, let's get out of here with any more major injuries and get ready for a grueling next few weeks because it's about to get tough. And that includes a couple games that weren't supposed to be so tough. Obviously, hosting the Swans is very significant. Then, Bobbers at the G, Crows at home, Tigers at the G, at Frio. So, not going to be an easy few weeks. But I think they did a good job to set the stage for that. And by not playing such a good second half, gives you things that when you go back to review this game, you can say, hey, we need to clean that up instead of, you guys are the best, great job, just keep doing what you're doing. As I've said before, I don't watch the Eagles very closely, or at least I haven't over the last couple of years. Between them being down and also just the way that we format things, we prioritize watching our own teams when there are overlaps. Yeah. You know, we make sure that at least one of us is watching every game and and not and watching it live. And he's always watching the Eagles. So I, I will say this. Jake Waterman's a good player. He's just throwing him into any sort of rock contest ever is malpractice. You want nobody his size should be doing that. Like, you've got to be at least Sam Powell Pepper size to be able to fit in that. No, I mean, I, I'm surprised they didn't throw Josh Rotham in there. I thought that was the obvious solution. Yeah, that. That made no sense. I mean, especially because Jeremy Cameron gave Josh Rotham a bath in this one. Waterman, well, Cameron Cameron had that stretch in the second quarter. Other than that, wasn't great, honestly. Um, yeah, um, not surprising to see Jeremy Cameron and Oscar Allen all kick four goals, but Jake Waterman and Brad Close as well. I also thought Elliot Yo looked good until he got hurt. Well, he had a slow first half, then got a bunch of clearances, and then he heard his groin. I was born with glass bones and paper skin. All right, stats real quick. Tom Stewart, 24 disposals. Patrick Dangerfield kicked two behinds, finished with 23 disposals and 10 score involvements. Isaac Smith, a goal and 23 disposals. The speed at his age is very, very welcome. 34-year-olds should not be able to run like that. Cam Guthrie, his best game of the year so far, even if the numbers weren't anything special, 22 disposals, but he didn't look too flat-footed or slow. He was moving well. He was getting guys involved. His possessions were seamless. That's the Cam Guthrie I've come to expect, and it was nice to have that back. Cameron, as you mentioned, 4-1. He had 18 disposals. Blitz odds with those two goals and 27 hitouts, 17 disposals and eight clearances. Brad Close, since I jumped on him in the second quarter of the Hawthorne game, has been pretty excellent. He finished with four goals on 16 disposals, and I think in Stengel's absence, he's going to have to do more of that. Maybe he can play Grian a little more forward as well, and you get Gary Rowan back next week. Tom Hawkins finished with 4-1 on 14 disposals, and because of that huge run late in the first and most of the second quarter, hitouts end up favoring the Cats 62-31, to although... I didn't think Bailey J. Williams was as bad as in prior weeks. I still don't think of him that highly. By the way, that was Brad Close's second ever four-goal game. Do you remember the first? No. You don't because 
I don't think anybody remembers much good on the Geelong side from round two last year, but that was against the Swans. Oh, okay. I was gonna, I was actually going to guess if there was a team. I was going to say, like, either it was also against the Eagles or I was going to guess the Swans, but then I was like, no, there haven't been enough good games against the Swans, but... Well, yeah, hey, he was good that night, now that I think about it. Two guys whose stats I didn't mention but I want to talk about briefly. Brandon Parfitt's been really bad in the sub role, which surprises me because he's very strong and very fast. And Max Holmes is getting better every week. He had a couple of ridiculous moves through the middle of the field that I was just so happy to watch. It's almost like he belongs as a wing. It was a goal with 12 minutes left. He had this give-and-go with Henry that led to Close's fourth. I remember it's like the jump he and Sam DeConing have both taken from what they were in their first season to now is staggering. By the way, the Cats all of a sudden have the sixth best percentage in the league at 119. At one point, there was a stretch. I think it was from like halftime of the Hawthorne game up until late in the second quarter of this game where their percentage was 555. Was a, it was a swamp thing. That's some real country footy percentage right there. Or just West Perth against the Eagles reserves. Yeah, the Eagles, as poorly as things went, were not as bad as their reserves. Yeah, West Perth won by a very nice 169 points. 217 to 48. Anytime a team breaks 200 in any game anywhere, even if it's like a country thing, it's pretty staggering. And uh, yep, West Perth did that. I mean, look, the Eagles are missing a lot and the seconds get hurt because of it, but there's a threshold where it's like enough is enough. You gotta you gotta show some level of confidence. Jermaine Jones had 25 disposals and gained 485 meters. He's becoming a steadier and steadier halfback, and that's very nice. We have Duggan at 23 disposals. Tim Kelly against his old side, 22 and 11 tackles. And as I mentioned, Jake Waterman and Oscar Allen both kicked 4-1. Jake Waterman belongs in the A-team. Also, I like Oscar Allen. We've talked about how good he's been. Saw it, I forget who it was on Twitter mentioning, like, it's amazing that he's doing this after missing a full season. I think it was Ryan Daniels. And it's also just, he's a fun watch. You know, a lot of the full forwards aren't that exciting, but his movement to get open in the forward 50 and the different angles he can kick from, he is a fun player. I think just because he's with the Eagles, a lot of people forgot how much he did for them in 2021 when they did a Carlton before Carlton did a Carlton and lost their last four games to miss finals. So Norwood gave us one good game on Friday. It gave us an even better one on Sunday. And you wouldn't have thought it because it was the Giants and Hawks. I mean, I guess you expected it to be competitive because these are two teams that are looking toward the future, playing a lot of young guys. They each had a debutante this game. Seamus Mitchell for Hawthorne, he got 52 tickets for the game. And number one pick Aaron Cadman for GWS, who got his first goal in the first quarter. Long overdue debut, he should have been playing over Jake Riccardi from the beginning. I had seen this as what should have been a close game, or at least one where I had no idea what was going to happen. And Rory Kilpatrick, who's one of the smartest people that we follow. His final tip for this one was basically a coin flip. He had like, well, his final tip was GWS by 0.02 with a 50% chance of victory. So I would assume he had Hawthorne 
at around 48% and 2% chance of a draw. And at one point I was really thinking a draw was possible and then too many behinds got in the way of that. The last two games each looked like a draw could have been possible. And ever since Brian Vera showed us the draw song, I now want like every game to be a draw. I was all set to call Benjamin downstairs and for us to like sing the draw song and include it again this week. But more importantly, just like see it in real time. And it, it, it sucks that that didn't get to happen. But look, I'm, I'm glad that there was a winner to this game because of the end. The Giants deserve this one. GWS 10-17-77, defeating Hawthorne 11-9-75. Had Jesse Hogan kicked more accurately, this would not have been the two-point margin that it was. Hogan just has to be getting in his head when it comes to set shots because, again, his ceiling remains quite high. This is like bad Max King misses. It's as if, you know, you're rolling a 20-sided die for his accuracy with every kick. This isn't Magic the Gathering, this is footy. Todd Davey had maybe my favorite tweet about this game. GWS saw Essendon kick 22 behind us last week and said, this is how I win, which I guess is a line from uh, Uncut Gems. I don't know movies. I actually forget if I've seen Uncut Gems, but it's just weird thinking of Adam Saylor doing some sort of drama. But this did end up being a fun game where the pendulum definitely did swing a few times in terms of pressure and forward time. GWS had it in the first quarter, then... Hawthorne were controlling the ball and the ground early in the second. Chad Wingard ended up cutting his tongue at one point. He had to be subbed out for that. He required stitches. So, I mean, surprised that a guy with guard in his name didn't end up wearing a mouth guard, but I guess he will now. I'm just reminded of third baseman for the then Cleveland Indians, Wadaribe, getting hit in the groin with a grounder and being asked why he wasn't wearing a cup. And he said, they don't make one big enough for me. Wanaribe underrated. What looked to me the most important coaching decision in this one, what could have ended up being decisive, considering the Giants' inaccuracy was, at halftime, Sam Mitchell decided to start tagging Tom Green. And Finn McGinnis wasn't in this one, so it ended up being Connor Nash. And Nash did pretty well in that role. Green was one of the most visible players over the whole round in the first half, and was really limited in the second. So the Hawks might have two legitimate tigers. A tall tagger is unusual at this point i'm just connor nash is just forever in my mind as tall guy although the character referred to as tall guy on the league was actually pretty normal height so maybe i should call someone more like ordinary sized tall guy well yeah connor nash is six six so i need someone who's like you know an even six feet or maybe a little less even to call tall guy the giants led by eight at the half but hawthorne reversed that margin by three-quarter time, Fergus Green was really involved in this one in positive ways. Noticed him making a lot of good leads and being rewarded for that. Fergus, I can't believe he's not Irish Green, because, I mean, that name just screams Irish. Often we're continuing to push the pace in the fourth quarter. An active game overall from Brian Myers' friend James Warple, which was good to see him, you know, continuing to be in good form. But Hawthorne never got out to a lead of more than nine points. Toby Green's third goal made it a three-point margin with about 14 minutes to go. A couple misses after that, one from, guess who? Jesse Hogan. Didn't have another goal this one until Talon Ward tied it at 68 with five minutes and 11 seconds remaining. Hawthorne immediately responded through Dylan Moore. 
Jesse Hogan missed once again after that. He kicked two four, and the four were really felt. Kind of amazing they won this game in spite of it. Expected score was 96 to 79, and the 19 points that the Giants left out there had a lot to do with Hogan. Well, after Chankwith Joff reached a really high kick for goal from Toby Green with about two and a half left, I wasn't convinced that Hawthorne were going to win, but I knew it was going to require something really special for the margin to change. And Harry Himmelberg then called game. And then he saved the game. He called. He made two ridiculous plays about a minute apart in terms of actual game time, maybe three minutes apart in real time, a tenth of a mile apart. That's the best part of this, is that the two plays, the hanger at one end where he basically jumped onto James Sicily, kicks the go-ahead goal, then at the other end, touches the Jarman MP kick that would have put Hawthorne back in front. And again, not just that he did both of those things, but that he did them a tenth of a mile apart. It's like, I'm just explaining this because I was able to get a couple people that had never watched footy before to tune in. Sold them on, hey, there's a team called the Giants, they wear orange and black. It was compared to like, you know, if LeBron had the chase down block on Iguodala and a big bucket at the other end, and it's like, yeah, except instead of being, you know, like 90 feet apart or, you know, 100 yards on a football field, this was like almost 180 yards. I don't think outside of like actual, you know, running events, you've ever had, maybe at some point in footy it's happened, but it, it has to have over 127 years of the NFL. Or a single player to do that in such a short span, a tenth of a mile apart, is the most badass shit ever. Hillberg's a free agent this year. The Giants are confident they'll re-sign him. Really? You think so after him putting on a show like that, after exhibiting to the entire footy world what he could do for a contender with that swingman skill set? I hope he stays. I could totally see like Richmond making a push for him because they love guys that can play at both ends of the ground and they seem to really like former Giants. They're at the top of the conversation. But that was that was a great finish to a game. And thanks to that finish, we have a record set in the Gather Round because the first two AFL games at Norwood Oval were decided by a grand total of 12 points. That is the closest combined margin for a venue's first two games ever beating out Cardinia Park in the 40s by a single point. I think this was a slightly less perfect matchup to hold there because Hawthorne's supporter base, even with the team being shitty, is big enough that you probably could have brought in you know, a few more thousand, but like no more than a 20,000-seat stadium was probably best for this game, maybe 22,000, 23,000. So, like, I get great job selecting this, and I know in the next few years, I'm sure there are things that they're going to they're going to have kinks to work out with the gather round, but figuring out like which matchups belong in which venue, there's a blueprint for like which games should go to the smaller venues. I think the biggest thing they're going to need to figure out is, you know, do you keep the double headers because you never really had a time where it was full in either of those? Maybe if the weather's better, that Port Bulldogs game is closer to it, but you didn't have, you know, like jam pack like you had for the Crows and Blues, or even for Richmond and Sydney. You know, it was kind of a lot of people coming and going throughout the day. It was a little bit NCAA tournament-ish in, a, in like, a cool way, but 
you'd love to see, you know, just the visual of the place we had absolutely packed. Notable individual stats for the Giants from this one. Stephen Canelio, 33 disposals, 9 sword involvement, 9 tackles, and at least one sentient eyebrow. Tom Green, 32 disposals, 11 score involvements, 9 clearances, and a one-game suspension for a dangerous tackle of Josh Ward, which unfortunately means he will not be able to play in the ACT in front of his fan club next week. I would just try to get him to find a way to serve that suspension at other times. You know, do it like MLB with these stupid long-ass appeals, and then you just drop it and serve it at a convenient time. Isaac Teehee coming with 25 disposals. Connor Iden and Lockie Whitfield with 23 for the back. Whitfield gained 556 meters as well. Biggest game for Iden so far this year. Visible in good ways. We were up and down about him last year, mostly down. Sam Taylor with 20 disposals, 16 intercepts, and 8 marks. He and Callum Wilkie have been the two best defenders in the competition thus far this year. I mean, I'll still make an argument for Tom Stewart, but he also hasn't been available in full. And if you're a believer that the best ability is availability, you can definitely make that case for either Taylor or Wilkie. But Wilkie's just gotten more attention because his team's been better and plays in Victoria. Harry Himmelberg kicks 2-3, but man, the place he made at the end made up for earlier misses. And Toby Green kicked 3-2 from 24 disposals. He's an all-right captain for now? Look, he hasn't gotten suspended yet. And this game did get a little chippy at times. Just a bit of banter. Which is great because these teams match up again. That's at Giants Stadium round 17, so early July. I love that of the three matchups this round that are going to have a rematch, two of them really left you hungry for more. Sydney Richmond because both teams were not anywhere close to healthy. GWS Hawthorne because it was such a great finish. And like even Port Bulldogs is like, all right, I'd like to see this in better conditions and... The rematch should be at Marvel, so that should be, that should handle that. James Warple finished this one with 35 disposals, 8 clearances, and 541 meters gained. The Hawks midfielders, it was really two guys that dominated this. You also had Jai Newcomb with a goal, 31 disposals, 10 clearances, and 10 score involvements. Connor Nash also ended up with 31 disposals and 7 clearances. Dylan Moore had 1-1 on 23 disposals. Note that Dylan Moore, the baseball player, is still not healthy, which is just a psyop, just like, you know, the Mackays. It's just like there's only one Dylan Moore. Carl Amon, two goals, 20 disposals, and Blake Hardwick showing some value with the kickouts. He gained 634 meters on 18 disposals, so imagine how much ground he could gain on a long ground in Tasmania. Don't forget, Hawks host the Crows for their second of four Tasmania home games next week. There's Always one for the Anzac round. So you mentioned earlier that the ex-scorebot called the last game of the round between Collingwood and St. Kilda and nearly looked really stupid for doing that. I did not expect the finish of this game to be exciting at all. I'm glad the scoring picked up a bit in the fourth quarter. We expected this to be a higher octane game and just more scoreboard impact in general, but it ended up being a slow burn for the majority of the proceedings. I mean, that's Ross Lyon footy in a lot of ways. I expected Craig McRae footy would end up prevailing and forcing the issue more, but it didn't. Collingwood 10-10-70, defeating St. Kilda 9-10-64. With just under eight minutes left, it was 70-44. to And in fact, up to around two minutes left, it was 70-45. to There were three things to take away from this game. And I think two of them are going to get a lot more play than the third. 
the teams running out together and Collingwood's statement apologizing to Nicky Winmar and Gilbert McAdam on the 30th anniversary of his stand. That was a wonderful scene. Great to have Nicky Winmar there for that as well. Great scenes of him uh, conversing with Eddie Betts before the game as well. Also, Eddie's post-game interview with Bobby Hill was awesome. You can see just like Eddie's energy and the way he connects with people. I mean, it's on display all the time, but with indigenous players even more so. And that's just really awesome to have. I would like to see all Collingwood fans admit Jesse Motlop is good and all Carlton fans admit Bobby Hill is good. Maybe it's going to be easier for them to admit Bobby's good because he's new to the pies. Wait for Carlton fans to admit Jack Ginnivan is good for the game. The other thing that's the obvious takeaway that people are going to talk about is how the game ended with the Saints nearly coming all the way back and getting me excited for a chance to maybe sing the draw song. That ended up not happening, but it was a hell of a fight in the last couple minutes. You had... Jack Higgins drawing a free on Brayden Maynard for high contact, kicking a goal with 157 left. Then Matthias Filippo with a really nice handball to Ryan Burns. That cuts it to 12 with 111 to go. And at that point, I'm still thinking, all right, it's still two goals with a minute to go. Lee Matthews says it's over. And then Burns scoops up a loose ball and Brad Crouch scores from 45. And with 51 seconds left, it's a six-point game. And then the Saints did get the ensuing clearance, but could never really get the ball cleanly. Uh, Jack Sinclair got intercepted by Braden Maynard on a not-great attempt to enter 50. Dougal Howard had one last intercept along the wing with maybe like 17 seconds left, but nobody could end up marking it cleanly back inside the forward 50, and there was like probably about a tenth of a second left when the ref ended up having a ball up where literally as the ball was in the air, the siren sounded... There was talk that maybe, I think it was John Noble could have been called for a high tackle, but looking at it, I didn't see anything there. I don't think the officiating was the issue. It was just a fun and chaotic finish to a really fun round. I still think the round should have been bookended by the home team, so you know this probably should have been the Saturday night game instead, and Port Bulldog should have been in this time slot, but the actual footy... Ended up being really fun in a game that was otherwise kind of a snooze fest, but Collingwood actually deserves some praise for making it a snooze fest, and this is the thing that people are going to miss about this game, because you had the pregame stuff and the ending. I don't think people realize Collingwood did a great job defending the Young Saints, taking Mitch Owens out of the equation, limiting Matthias Filippo. Anthony Caminiti is going straight to the tribunal for punching Nathan Murphy in the face, and that's really the most we heard of him. He did have two goals by three-quarter time. He has seven goals for his first five games, and so his absence could actually be felt. I mean, I expect Tim Memory to be brought back in. He was an emergency option for this week, so a hole that he and Zane Cordy actually need to really fill, which is surprising when Caminiti was the last guy on the list this year. Also, uh, Cordy got subbed out in this game for Jack Vitell. Vitell was another one who was largely held down that I've really liked. So, so Collingwood, even though they're they're used to playing up tempo, they managed to they managed to kind of work at a slower speed and kind of say, "Hey, yeah, I know you like playing this game, Sinkilda. We can play it too." They made the biggest threats a non-factor largely, and that's why they won this game. Nick Dacos was everywhere in this game. He and his brother both. I mean, the brothers combined for 72 disposals. That might be a sibling record 
a pair of siblings record anyway. Nick with 42 on 856 meters gain, Josh with 30 on 502 meters gain, and those are functional meters gained looking at you, Aaron Hall. Tom Mitchell, 28 disposals. Steel Sidebottom, who is really having a, just a quality season to this point. He does not play like a 32-year-old. He's also got the shaved head that makes him look even older. He had 25 disposals and gained 547 meters. John Noble, 24 disposals and 552 meters. I've noticed Noble for a while just because he just kind of stands out on the field. It's easy to spot him, but this past year plus, he's gotten more and more involved in Collingwood's game plan under Craig McRae, and I'm happy for him, I'm happy, and I'm happy for the club for it. I mean, his two best games were definitely both against Carlton last year, but yeah, he's been solid. Wait, Noble after the siren against the Blues this year? Wouldn't rule it out. Scott Pendlebury, 23 disposals. Jack Crisp, 22. Looked much more like himself this round. Isaac Quainer had a quiet 15 disposals, but 11 intercepts. Plays well against taller forwards, too, and that's going to be necessary when Nathan Murphy, who had 10 intercepts of his own, is out concussed. I think Quainer is one of the more underrated interceptors. He's not, like, the first one that comes to mind, like, you know, a, a Sam Taylor. But... He's good at it. He just, he needs to do it a little more consistently. Just thinking about kind of filling the hole that Murphy being out of the side leaves is going to be tough because Murphy tends to take one-on-one -on -one assignments more than Darcy Moore does. Moore tends to be that roving center half back. And Billy Frampton was the primary ruck for this game. And it worked, I guess, because St. Kilda doesn't have as many talls. And also, Dan McStay got hurt, injured a tendon in his finger. And so the ruck situation gets even more dire for the pies. Two guys, two guys I really like watching. You already mentioned Nathan Murphy, but also Bo McCreary. He was, even if he didn't have a stat line that jumped out at all, I just liked his game and the combination of him and Brody Majacek, the way they both use their size, really helps complete that forward group. I guess we should also talk about Jack Denovan for a bit because he's good for footy and this was his first game. Uh, I guess it's notable that his hair isn't bleached anymore. And also, he looks like he belongs playing alongside Bobby Hill. And I'm very happy for that because the conversation when Hill came in was, oh, he and Ginnivan are going to be competing for a spot. The two of them actually combined for one of Hill's three goals. Ginnivan had one goal and a behind on 13 disposals, but I liked his game because he didn't just do stuff in the forward 50. He moved around some and... Had a really nice smother. He had so Ben Patton intercepted a kick and then gave an answer by smothering it. It's like this guy is more than just the goal scorer. And I know he's still only 20, but he could really round out his game and thrive in a variety of roles. Like I think, you know, his long term spot is going to be as a forward, but like you can flex him around a bit because you have Bobby Hill. Brad Crouch is putting up career numbers through the first five games this year, which is pretty amazing considering he's 29, but he kicked two goals on 33 disposals and nine clearances and gained 529 meters. Jackson Clair had 27 disposals and 494 meters. Hunter Clark kicked a goal from 26. Glad he's at full health. Rowan Marshall had 25 disposals, nine score involvements, seven clearances and 32 hitouts, all of which helped lead him to an AFL fantasy score of 134. And I put the captaincy on him this round. So thank you very much, Rowan. 
I know Josh Battle was also a really high scorer this round. 24 disposal, 13 marks at 523 meters. He's been doing a good job supporting Callum Wilkie. It's always necessary to have someone like him or Dougal Howard providing that support. Wilkie had 24 disposals, 11 marks, 10 intercepts and gained 539 meters. He's Callum Wilkie and Callum Wilkie's good. Mason Wood, 23 disposals, so he keeps up his streak but didn't kick a goal in this one either. Had two behinds. Ryan Burns kicked 1-1 one, one from 22. And Nazai Wagening Millera gained 528 meters on 21 disposals. I like how he can be kind of more of that outside mover, whereas Jack Sinclair also does do the outside work, but can go more toward the middle of the ground as well. I'm just surprised that this game was as entertaining as it was, despite the inside 50 disposal efficiency being putrid. St. Kilda were at 40%, and they were the better of the two. Collingwood were at 35.9%. And remember that St. Kilda's was probably buoyed by the last couple minutes. Look, if you're the Saints, this is not a bad loss. You had a team that minimized your strengths, and you made it interesting in the final minutes. Normally, a one-goal loss hurts like hell, but considering the nature of this one, you just leave saying, like, all right, hell of an effort down the stretch. Got a few things to fix. I imagine Ross Lyon will maintain the positivity after this one still. We'll note that this is the first time in four seasons that all teams have had at least one win and one loss this early. Last year, it took until, I believe, round 11. Yeah, that was when Narm dropped their game to Fremantle. 2020, it took, 2020, it took until round 15 for the Crows to get a win. They lost 13 games, had a bye, and then went on a three-game winning streak. So the parity, or rather, P-A-R-I-T-Y, could be higher this year, hopefully. Or maybe it's just that just the way matchups have fallen have, have made this happen, and we'll still see some greater separation later on. I mean, the better teams will rise to the top in the end of it, and West Coast, Hawthorne, probably GWS will sink toward the bottom. But I can see getting crowded near the top of the ladder and, you know, a lot of teams around 15, 16 wins. All right, time for nominees. Mark of the Week, round four, went to Michito Pepper Owens. Over Matt Rowell. Rowell was engaged in a one-on-one contest with Mason Wood. I think I'd prefer Marcus Bontempelli, but I don't remember. I think we both picked Bontempelli, in fact. Your round five nominees are Bailey Humphrey, one-handed in back of Luke Bryan before his first AFL goal. Cody Wakeman over Kane Farrell for his first touch of the season. And Harry Himmelberg over James Sicily before kicking the winner. I think... The winner has to be Himmelberg because of the situation, but that Waitman mark was damn good, too. Waitman's was good. Himmelberg's was clutch. The GWS Twitter account made a made a good meme about Himmelberg being clutch as well, so bonus points for that. As of now, Harry Himmelberg has two of the three nominees for Mark of the Year. Just like how Liam Ryan ended up with two nominees on Brownlow Night in 2019. Goal of the week. Last week, it was Jake Stringer winning it with his barrel on the run from 61 meters out for his last of four goals. I gave credit to Charlie Cameron for selling candy wholesale to Nathan Murphy, but I knew Stringer was going to win. The people love their chore. I don't blame them. And this one was actually a live play. Your nominees this round, you got Darcy Wilmot. I mentioned this one earlier. Kept the ball alive on the left boundary and immediately turned and snapped from a 54-degree angle 33 meters out. You had Kyle Langford's goal where he pushed Stephen May off the ball, kicked on the outside of his move from 46, and it rolled through. 
that was impressive just because who pushes Stephen May off the ball. Then on Sunday, you had Zach Tui receiving for Brad Close in the right pocket. He got away from Tom Barris, took a bounce, and kicked check side from 30 out at a 62-degree angle. Zach Tui kicking check side is remarkable. He gets my vote. He gets my vote. Not just because you're a Cats member. Oh, no, that was the little, like, the moment you saw it. It was, it was a, it was a, wow. So that's, that's you and her. Uh, nominees for main character this round. Got a good mix of on the field and off the field this week, which is nice. You got Tom Papley, who likes to celebrate, and kicked six. I think his six goals aren't the thing I really want to focus on here. It's that he likes to celebrate. You had Harry Himmelberg, who, as I mentioned, called game and then saved said game and then off the oval the south australian premier peter malinowskis was visible in good ways this round made it out to the suburban and regional venues which was great he and gillen mclaughlin went everywhere this round and he also was the one to announce the, the extension of the contract for three more years but he was clearly very involved in like telling people hey show up let's make this an event he said that one of his goals was to get more people to Richmond and Sydney than they had ever gotten in Sydney. Success. But there's a winner whose name we do not know, but we know what his sign said. He had a jumper that was like a mashup of all 18 teams, and the sign said, all teams should merge. This guy is not a Fitzroy or Bears fan. He is a Fitzgray fan. South Fitzgray. He is and should be going forward the mascot of the gather round and the afl twitter account even mentioned him and said this guy can't lose go footy it's a shame there wasn't a draw i, I don't know if he would have survived from the excitement who cares that his essendon sash was backwards this guy's amazing i love weird signs like you know just like a sign for someone being your favorite player is not that great i mean i do plan on having a sign you know 32, we named our cat after you, but still not, you know, like, that's still not just, like, as funny as something that's so, I don't know, whether it's just a statement or is very out of place. Like, at an A's game a couple weeks ago, there was this old dude holding up a little sign that said, rubber match. Like, he really needed everyone to know that the teams had split the first two games of the series and that this was the third game. I, I, I have no idea why this happened. If we attend a dead rubber game, do we just need to hold up a dead rubber sign? Or maybe just a rubber chip? I don't know. People get it? I mean, dead rubber, there's some sort of really, like, there's some sort of joke in a really poor taste to be made about Belgian Congo. Uh... Yeah, I, I mean, I have, you know, there's been the bad pun, you know, the Belgians took a hands-off approach. Honestly, I was thinking more in, in terms of a rubber chicken, just the stupid shit Adam Simpson did it is, uh, when he was playing at North still. But yeah, all teams should merge. You are the main character. However, he is not the biggest winner of the round. The biggest winner of the round is the Adelaide Oval grounds crew or... Curators, I guess, which is a hilarious term because when I think of curators, I think of museums. Eels. Yeah, I think of museums. So that's just another really funny term. But and and apparently they're known as, you know, the best grounds crew curators in Australia to begin with because of how pristine the oval always looks for footy and cricket alike and that people really enjoy playing on the surface for both sports. But the fact is they kept it up despite the weather on 
Friday and Saturday in particular, six games and stretches where it absolutely fucking dumped. And they did a great job with it. Levi Stadium, take notes from these people. Like, I think the Rose Bowl usually has the best playing surface out there. This might be better. Like, obviously, it drains really well, but there's also a human aspect to this. Like, I think back to the 2020 season where it's like there were, you know, you could see some patches at, at what was that, Metrocon and the GABA. And, like, you know, it was kept up pretty well, but there was, you know, you could tell. The, the surface, the G has had issues, whether it's because of Ed Sheeran or just... After a few games, the center circle is a little bit worn. So they were able to keep this thing in such great shape. Like turf experts around the world, which is a thing, because any sport played on grass needs a good playing surface. Talk to these people, because they know what the fuck they're doing. Let's see how much we end up using the soundbite after this, because... I mean, I'm not sure what it's going to be like from here. We'll obviously reference this round when it comes to rematches that happen later in the year and just kind of doing recaps later on, post-mortems for different clubs and for the season as a whole. But, I mean, obviously this is the most that we'll use it, so let's just take a moment to reflect on that as this episode ends, I guess. Now, I wanted Benjamin to keep a live count of how many times we used it. He didn't. He's going to go back and count after, so... I'm going to have, like, a really poorly dubbed thing. We used the soundbite eight times in this episode and 20 times in the last two throughout this entire rep. Don't forget, you can find us on Twitter and YouTube at Americans Footy. I am at BenjaminHK01 on Twitter. I am at Castle Media. Brian Harambe is sleeping next to me right now, and I'm going to have to get him up to change the sheets on the bed, and I already feel bad about that. You should. He's on Instagram with Cat named Brian. We'll see you soon for our round six preview with more overlaps and no Thursday night footy for a while. But Anzac round, so not as much overlap coming up this round at least, lest we forget. My guest for time in this episode, hour 52.